In July, there are four Sundays, if you hadn't worked that out. This is the first of them. In Colossians, there are four chapters. So in the next four weeks, we're going to cover the first of the four chapters of Colossians, the book of Colossians. Now, in, it, with, as with most of Paul's letters, what you get is a, is a, a section at the beginning where he deals with, with doctrine and with teaching, and then the section at the end, which is more practical. So I'm not going to be terribly practical today, because we're going to do some, some doctrine-y kind of stuff. So, uh, but, but for me, doctrine is always exciting, because so, I'm sad like that. Um, but we're going to look at the book, the book of Colossians, and we're going to work through chapter 1 this morning. It's the shortest of Paul's letters, Colossians, so it's the easiest in many ways to grasp hold of what he's, his argument and his development as he goes. But we'll start off with thinking about the city of Colossae. Uh, that's the city of Colossae just there, and it's about 100 miles inland from Ephesus, which is there. That just places it for you. Anyone been to Turkey? Yeah, one or two. Yeah. So there you go. If you want a place for, for where Colossae is, it's an inland city about 100 miles east of Ephesus in Turkey. It was a populous place. It was a busy place. It was cosmopolitan. There was different ethnic and cultural elements mingling together, a bit like Leeds or Manchester. And the church at Colossae seems to have been established, according to most scholars, by a guy called Epaphras. He was a friend of Paul, and he comes up and he's mentioned three times within the New Testament, twice in this letter and once in the letter to Philemon. And it seems to be, from, uh, from the record of Acts 19, that Paul spent two years ministering in Ephesus, and as he did so, that ministry in Ephesus had an effect over that whole region. It says actually that the gospel went to the whole region of Asia, and that was the area known as Asia in those days. So as Paul was working in Ephesus, so the gospel influenced that whole region of the country. And it seems that at that time, this guy Epaphras had been in in Ephesus. He came to faith, and then he went back to his hometown of Colossae, and he preached the gospel there, and he established the church there. So Colossae was a place that Paul never actually visited, But his friend Epaphras, this man who had come to faith in Ephesus, established it as part of the work that was going on in Ephesus. And the letter to the Colossians also seems to have accompanied Onesimus and Tychicus back to Colossae. Who are Onesimus and Tychicus? Anyone know? If you read the book of Philemon... Philemon was a man in Colossae, and Onesimus was his runaway slave. And the whole book of Philemon is about Paul sending back this runaway slave who had come to faith when he'd met Paul, and Paul sends him back. Well, with Onesimus and Tychicus, who goes back with him, Tychicus is the smallest man in the New Testament, of course. (laughs) The two of them go back to to Colossae, and they carry with them this letter that Paul has written. Now, scholars aren't convinced whether Paul wrote it from Rome or whether it was when he was in prison in Ephesus. But either way, Paul writes this letter from prison. And he's writing to this church in Colossae. And it seems that when Epaphras had come to Paul to report on the work in Colossae, he'd shown or told of some heresy, some error that was creeping into the teaching 
of the church in Colossae. Some people had bought some wrong doctrine, some wrong teaching, and it was having a negative effect on, Coloss- on the Colossians. So this whole letter is addressed into that error, that heresy, that, that wrong teaching that had come in. Paul is trying to adjust it, correct it, so that people can actually get the right view of the gospel and not this rubbish that's coming in from some other people. Now, we won't deal with what that heresy, what that error is this week. We'll think about that a little bit more next week. But this opening chapter lays the foundations of all that Paul wants to say to the Colossians throughout the rest of the chapter. So let's start. Let's work through this um, this first chapter in chunks so that we can take them in bite-sized pieces. And we'll read, first of all, Colossians chapter 1, verse 1 to 8. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren and sistering in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as as it's been doing um, in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is faithful servant to Christ on our behalf, and he has also informed us of your love in the Spirit. That's one of Paul's typical sentences. He never knows quite where to pull full full stops in or commas or or anything else. He just pours it all out in a constant flow. And sometimes it's hard to to pick out just one thing because his sentences are so rich and so full of all this information that he wants to... It's all just bubbling out of him and he's trying to get get across what's in his heart. And it's one of Paul's typical sentences of outpouring of what's in his heart towards these Colossians. But he begins by affirming these Colossian Christians in their faith. And he affirms them for three things. Faith, hope, and love. Verse 4 to 5. Are they familiar somewhere, from somewhere? Faith, hope, and love. Where do we see those three things? 1 Corinthians 13. And as you dig into this, there's a very similar message in this passage to 1 Corinthians 13. And Paul is actually giving us... Um, a little bit more information about what he means by those three things. Verse 4, since we've heard of your faith, it's not just blind faith, faith in Christ Jesus. Your faith in Jesus. Your belief and knowledge of all that Jesus is and all that he has done for you and all that he wants to do for you. And the love which you have for the saints, love for one another. That's what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 13. And then because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Faith, hope, love. Faith in Jesus. Love for one another. Hope for the future. Those are the three things that God gives to us and that he holds most precious. Those are the three core values. Those are the three core um, virtues. That he holds up for each one of us to have. These are what demonstrate how real our faith is in Christ Jesus. That we have faith in him. That we have love for one another. And that we have hope for the future. Because of what Jesus has done for us. 
And then he sums it up in verse 8. And he also informed us of your love in the spirit. What typifies these believers in Colossae is their love in the spirit. And again, going back to 1 Corinthians 13, what's Paul emphasizing? Love, 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 love. See, love doesn't simply mean that they have good feelings about each other. They may or may not. What matters is that the behavior which marks out so much of the world, lust, anger, lies, slander, and so on, which splits up families and communities, is being replaced by kindness, gentleness, forgiveness, and an acceptance of one another as members of the same family. Even when there were major differences of race, background, and culture, As far as Paul is concerned, love is the true sign of God at work. And he is thrilled and grateful to hear about it amongst these Colossian Christians. And this love has come about as they've opened themselves up to the gospel, the word of truth, to take root in their lives. And you see, the most important effect of the gospel is not how much knowledge we have. It's not how many gifts we can exhibit. It's not how many people we can see saved, but how effectively the love of God has captured our hearts so that we express that love to one another. So that we allow it to shape and mold our behavior towards one another. And this, of course, is what Paul was getting at in 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Love is The core. Love is the demonstration of the reality of the words we profess. And if we don't have love, then it undermines everything about what we pretend to believe. Love needs to typify our relationships with one another. It means acceptance. It means not rejecting, not holding on to... um, Issues, not holding on to unforgiveness, not holding one another at arm's length, not rejecting because somebody's hurt us. Love means having an open hand to receive and to continue giving, even when giving hurts. Love typifies the believers in Colossae. Love must typify who we are. It's the most important attribute we can exhibit. It's not a sloppy and emotional kind of love, but a love that says I'm committed to you for your good and for your well-being, come what may. This is the love we must exhibit towards one another in the body of Christ. Am I doing okay so far? Are you all right? Let's take the next chunk, verse 9 to 12. I should have put that up, shouldn't I? (laughs) Love. For this reason, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. (sighs) 
Again, another outpouring. But this is Paul's prayer for them. And he prays that they may be filled in the knowledge of his will. I should have cut off in all because I'm halfway through a sentence there. May be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. That they may bear fruit in every good work. That they may increase in the knowledge of God. That they may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. In order that they may obtain all steadfastness and patience. And that they may joyously give thanks to the Father. And he concludes by reminding them that the Father has qualified them. Us. To share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's done the qualification. We heard a little bit earlier about feeling unworthy. Well, you don't need to feel unworthy because God has done the qualification. It's as if he sat the exam for us. <laughs> How's that about that, Ben? <laughs> Save you sitting your finals when you come to them. He sat the exam. He's qualified us. He's made it possible. He's done all that's necessary. And Paul's prayer is that knowledge, wisdom and understanding will result in a change in behavior which will lead to fruit bearing. And these in turn will lead to further knowledge, greater strength, character formation, which will all all bring glory to God. Our knowledge of God and of the gospel must bring change in us that in itself will bring us greater strength. The purpose of the gospel is not to leave us where we are. It's to bring us through a process of transformation. And that's what Paul is getting at. That by the knowledge that they have of what Jesus has done, he won't leave them the same, but it will cause them to press on and change and become more like Jesus and become more what he's called them to be. And out of that change, they'll get stronger and they'll be even more like Jesus wants them to be and more like him. Pressing on, pressing on. There there is a sense of pressing on. And I believe the word of the Lord to some today is don't stop. We've had that again. Don't just have a nibble at the table. Don't stop. If you've come to some knowledge, don't stop. If you've come to some understanding, don't stop. If you've got to a level of faith, don't stop. If you've started exercising gifts, don't stop. Press on, because God's got more for you. And he wants to strengthen you and build you up so that you can then have more. And understand more and be more fulfilled. Why? Because verse 13. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He's rescued us and he's transferred us. We were in one kingdom. We're now in another kingdom. We were once under one authority. We're now under another authority. We were once in one place. We're now in a new place. Everything's changed. After the World Cup, and even now, frenetic activity will take place in the transfer market. Players will move from one club with one set of loyalties to another club with a new set of loyalties. Just in the last week or so, Luke Shaw has moved from Southampton and he's seen the light. And he's come to play for Man United. <laughs> he was a young, he's a young 18-year-old Southampton player, had his first few one or two caps for England, was there in the last game of the World Cup playing. 
uh, that England played in. And when he next goes out to play football, it will be not be wearing the stripes of Southampton, but the glorious red of United. <laughs> His loyalties will have completely changed. He's no longer in the kingdom of darkness. He's now in the kingdom of light. <laughs> Am I going too far now? <laughs> but wouldn't it be strange if come August, middle of August on the first day of the new season, he puts on his old Southampton kit and runs out and he starts kicking the ball in the wrong direction and playing against his own team. Yes, it would be strange. <laughs> Wouldn't it be bizarre if a footballer stayed loyal to his old club when he'd come to a new club? It's no less bizarre than Christians who stay under the authority of Satan and doing, live in the old way and carrying out the old behaviours and keeping to the same loyalties when they've been transferred into a greater kingdom, the kingdom of light. And they've been set free from the power of darkness. And they're no longer under the authority of Satan. They're in a new kingdom. We are in a new kingdom. We've been transferred. When we come to faith, everything changes. We're no longer under the old authority. We're no longer loyal to the world, the flesh and the devil. We're transferred to the, transferred to the kingdom of God. And all our loyalties need to change and come under the remit of the king of kings. And this is to impact our beliefs, our values, and our behaviours. And it's especially to impact how we are with each other. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, complete and utter payment paid. I don't know what Luke Shaw's payment tr price was. But I've been paid, purchased with a higher payment price, the blood of the Lord Jesus. And I'm no longer in that kingdom. I'm in this kingdom. And I will live as a son of the kingdom of God. Now we come to verse 15. And 15 to 20 are the key passage in this whole book. In it, Paul is making some clear declarations and some clear statements. On which are foundational for everything else he will say. Verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now these verses are actually poetic. They're in the form of a poem. Ruthie, you can go back and study this poem when you go back to your studies in English literature. I'll show you, I'll show you how it works. Okay? He takes a phrase, a key phrase, and then develops it. And then he takes another key phrase and then develops it. 
So it actually forms a poem all the way through. So, he starts off. The sun is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. What's he saying here? What's he saying? Well, first of all, he's saying in all of this that Paul's aim is to lay out the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus the Messiah. And he's doing this in order to lay the framework for chapter 1. But he starts with this wonderful phrase. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, we, when we think of an image, what, are we, what, do we, what immediately springs to mind? A picture or a mirror, a reflection. Yeah? Well, actually, the word used in this passage is a bit stronger than that. The Greek word is a bit stronger and a bit deeper. The word for, that's translated as image in our English version is the word icon. Now, when we think of icons, we might think of pictures of people with halos around their heads that the Eastern Orthodox use. But actually, this is what the word, meaning of the word icon is. It's something which bears a resemblance to the original. Sorry. It's something which infers a likeness, but in a form in which it is made of the same basic substance which it portrays. It's something which bears a resemblance to the original, but is actually in the same, made of the same basic substance as that which it portrays. The closest we can come is that of a physical son or a physical daughter. Now, isn't, isn't he the image of his son, of his father? When people look at me and Joshua, they normally can quite easily tell whose son he is. He's got some of my image in him. He's also got some of my physical attributes in him. He's got some of my emotional attributes in him, poor lad. <laughs> and characteristics. There's no... Mistaking whose son he is. He obviously had a lay-in this morning after last night's feast. (laughs) Otherwise, I'd have stood him up here next to me so you could see it. But he is the image of his father. Jesus is the image of God. He's not just a picture of him. He's not just something that represents him. He's made of the same substance. They are one. They're not two separate entities. They're made of exactly the same substance. So Jesus is as much God as God is, but amongst us in a form in which we can have a relationship with him and can see as opposed to the invisible God. And Paul is laying out very clearly the starting point. He is the image of the invisible God. He's not something separate. He's not a lesser being. He is God, but in a form that we can recognize. And he's the firstborn over all creation. Now, this is a phrase he uses twice in this passage. Firstborn over all creation. Second part, he's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. He's the firstborn of the old creation. He's the firstborn of the new creation. What what is the significance of being firstborn? Inheritance, thank you. There's two elements. Firstly, inheritance. Secondly, supremacy. Number one. You're number one, Ben. Yeah? (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm number three, so. So I get nothing. (laughs) But there is this element that Jesus is the firstborn over creation and over new creation. I'm the thirdborn son, not thirdborn child. (laughs) Just in case my sister, my older sister, questions what I've just said. Um, he is firstborn over the old creation. He's firstborn over the new creation. He was firstborn over the old creation because he was the one through whom it was all created. He is the one who brought it all into being. He is the one through whom God made everything that is that has been made. But he's the firstborn over the new creation because he's the first one who has been risen from the dead. And the new creation is that which is resurrected. Now, you and I are born again, but we've not yet received the fullness of that transaction, which is our resurrection, which is to come. We are eternal beings. We will live forever. We will be born. um, We will be joined Jesus in his resurrection power once we've shuffled off this mortal coil. But he is the firstborn. He's made the way. He's gone before us. And the fact that he has risen from the dead is the guarantee that we too will rise from the dead. So he's the firstborn over the old creation. He's the firstborn over the new creation. He's supreme over creation. And he's supreme. He pre-existed all creation. And Jesus therefore holds the new and the old creation together. He was the means through which it was brought into being. He's the new firstborn over the new creation. And he's risen from the dead. That we too will rise from the dead. And he will restore all the old creation and the new creation under one lordship, his very own. And then thirdly, he says, he's supreme over everything. He is number one. Jesus is number one. All things were created by him and for his good pleasure. He's the head of the church, it says. He's the head over all things, and he's working out his purposes in this creation through the church so that his plan will be accomplished on the earth. In summary, Jesus is God in human form, the redemptive power of the universe, and number one in authority over all things. You can't get any better than that. You can't get any higher. You can't get anything that is above and beyond Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is saying. And he's saying it to those who are questioning who Jesus was and what his significance was. And so this statement is recorded and written down. This poem is is placed there. So that if we're in any doubt as to who Jesus is, Colossians 1, 15 to, to, to 20, it's all there. And then verse 21 to 23. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet now he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you've heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, (coughs) excuse me, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So he says... We were alienated, enemies, it says elsewhere. 
We were far from God. We were nowhere near. But now, we are reconciled. We're brought back into relationship with God. We who were enemies and alienated and far away are now reconciled with him. And throughout Paul's writings, he emphasizes the way that the way has been made open for us who were not of the covenant people, not of Israel, to come into covenant and into relationship with the living God. And that way has been opened up for us by the cross, by what Jesus has done. We were not just lacking knowledge of God, but we were aliens, enemies. And Paul says elsewhere that we were enemies. We were outside the covenant. We were in the wrong kingdom. We were worshipping the wrong gods, behaving in the wrong way, believing the wrong things. But God, as David Bartle would say, but God changed all that. And did everything necessary to bring us back into relationship with God. But in verse 23, Paul gives a caveat. He said, the proof of whether you've really believed that, whether you've really accepted it, whether you really believe that that is the truth, is whether you're still walking in it. Whether you've gone on in it. That's the proof. Not whether you prayed a prayer 30 years ago, but whether you've taken what you believed And you're still walking in it now. Whether you've gone on with it. That's the proof of whether it was real. Continuing in your faith. And he says. As we do so. We demonstrate. That Jesus. Is the Lord. And then we come to the final section. And I'm not going to dwell too long on this final section. Verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which was lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints, to whom God willed to make known... What is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we might present them, every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which, all my, which mightily works um, among you, or within you. And Paul's emphasis at the end is that we grow in Christ. He says there was a mystery that was not understood until these last times. That the covenant was being opened up and that not just Jews could come in, but Gentiles, us, could come into the covenant. And Paul's passion is to make known to them that Jesus has made that possible for them and the way has been made up for them to come in. And that the great mystery is that now Jesus Christ is in you. Jesus is in you. And he is your hope, the hope of glory. And just as an aside, the word glory often used in the New Testament is code for resurrection. Jesus is the hope. Jesus, the fact that Jesus is in you, Jesus is in you by his Holy Spirit, is your confirmation that resurrection is coming. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus is in you. Jesus has promised that he will fulfill 
that which he began 2,000 years ago. So never stop seeking to know more about all that God has done for you and is doing for you in Christ Jesus. Allow his resurrection life to transform you so that we too will arrive at the image of his son. And when we come to chapter 3, we'll see how that works out practically. Because chapter 3 is all about taking that resurrection power and allowing it to transform us so that what we live out in terms of our life is a life that is like Christ and a life that is being changed day by day to be more like him. So I hope that overview of chapter 1 has been okay just to give you a flavor for what Paul is saying and where he's going. This is rich, deep stuff. And I could probably have spent all morning on each of those little sections quite easily. But the the thrust of all this is this. Jesus is number one. He is supreme. And he's done a mighty work in your lives to transform you, to change you, to move you from one place to a new place so that you have the possibility of a new life and of a better way of living. And he's going to finish the job off when he returns to raise us up to new life. And if that's not a truth worth proclaiming, I don't know what is. Amen.